Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at borocitychurch.com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for the gospel that through Christ in the Spirit you have shown us that you love us, you've revealed yourself to us, you've told us that you want to know us. Uh, Father, as we think about tomorrow, um, as we remember all those who lost their lives uh, fighting for our freedom to keep war from coming to our doorsteps, uh, Father, we thank you for Jesus who defeated death and who promised us that one day there will be no more wars. Father, would you... Help us to hear the Spirit as he speaks to our church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, I'm Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at City. We're going to be in Revelation 2 this morning. If you guys want to turn over there, Revelation 2. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we have some Bibles actually in the back corner over here. You're welcome to grab one on your way out. Uh, In the meantime, you can follow along with me here on the screen. So the book of Revelation, we are uh, talking about a book this morning that a lot of people avoid because they're scared of it. They don't know what to make of it. Uh, It's also a book that a lot of Christians obsess over because they're trying to figure out what does this prophecy mean? What does that illustration mean? What news headline of the day today might be a prophecy fulfilled in Revelation? Um, So some of you maybe, we'll have a couple things here on the screen. Some of you, when you think of Revelation, you may think of something like this, right? The world's on fire, you know, atomic bomb, uh, cities falling apart, right? When you think of Revelation, you might think of the Antichrist. So some of you uh, thinking about the Antichrist may have thought of one of these guys, right? Right? No, nobody in this church has ever called any president the Antichrist, right? Okay, just checking. Okay, so you may have thought of this. Uh, If you grew up in the 90s uh, in the church as a Christian, when you think of the Antichrist, you might think of this guy. Anybody know his name? Anybody? Nikolai Carpathia from the Left Behind series, right? Right? The Left Behind, the the movie series that ruined the book of Revelation for an entire generation of Christians. I'm just going to actually have a note here that says, do not rant about Left Behind. So so I'm I'm done talking about Left Behind. But the book of Revelation is not primarily a book about meteor showers, the world falling apart, cities collapsing, uh, all of the things that we try to figure out all the time. Uh, The book of Revelation is actually about how God is going to make all things new. That God is going to keep his promise throughout all of the Bible to redeem all things, to end sin once and for all. The book of Revelation is about a a wedding, not a funeral. It's about uh, God coming down to earth, not us escaping earth and going up to him. It's about man and God being together again. The last book of the Bible is not about how the world ends, but rather about how the world is remade and restored through Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, because I think a lot of us uh, go through trials and afflictions of life. We look around at the news today, we look at what's going on in the world, and we think, um, this is as bad as it's going to get. It can't get any worse than this. Maybe, uh, maybe we're toward the end. Maybe Jesus is coming back tomorrow, and maybe he is. But the book of Revelation is not there to scare us into thinking that the world is going to end one day. It's actually to give us hope that even though the world is suffering, even though there is affliction, that there's something better coming for those who believe in Christ. And he tells us here that the only way that we can persevere in faith, the whole book of Revelation tells us over and over again, is to listen to the Holy Spirit, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
just to let you know where we're going to go this morning, I'm not going to have like your typical three-point sermon. So 20 minutes in when you haven't seen point one, don't worry, I'm not doing a two-hour sermon to make up for one service. Uh, I'm, I've got, I'm going to walk through the passage a little bit, and I'm going to have a ton of uh, practical application points. So technically, it's a six-point sermon, but the last six are really quick, and they're, and they're very practical, okay? So, so let's go to Revelation 2, 8 to 11. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is Jesus talking. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. But be faithful to the point of of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Okay, so this is to the church in Smyrna, not to be confused with Smyrna, Tennessee, which would have made the sermon a little bit more interesting. Um, but it's the church in Smyrna in, in, in uh, ancient Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And in this city, the city was very important in, in Asia Minor because it was where the uh, temple to the Roman emperor Tiberius was built. So it's the most important temple in all of Rome where people would go and go to worship Caesar as the king. We also see here that there's apparently a Jewish synagogue here that's persecuting Christians, uh, apparently has enough sway to convince the Roman government to throw them into prison, right? Because it says this synagogue of Satan is going to slander about you and have you thrown into prison. Well, the only ones that can throw them into prison would be the Roman soldiers. So there's some sort of a, of a mix here between this Roman empire and the Jewish people persecuting them together. Now, Jesus calls them here the synagogue of Satan. He calls the Jewish people the synagogue of Satan. And we've seen him use these strong words before. If you look at John 8... Uh, he's in a debate with some Jewish leaders, and they say that God is their father. And this is what Jesus says to them. If God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. And this is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. So the point that Jesus is making here in our passage and in John is that these Jewish leaders are of Satan because they're opposed to the gospel. Now, I want to do a little footnote here because I think a lot of people over time have said different things about how God hates Jewish people, the Bible's anti-Semitic. Some people have said that Hitler used the Bible to justify the Holocaust. Uh, But I just want to clarify, if you've heard that or if you're thinking that or if you're wondering why is Jesus calling the Jews a synagogue of Satan, um, we need to understand that the Bible makes a very clear picture of the Jewish people being God's chosen people, right? They're the ones that through uh, Israel, the world was going to be saved, that all nations would be saved through Israel. This is promised all throughout the Old Testament. And this is most clearly shown in the birth of Jesus, right? A Jewish boy with a Jewish name born to Jewish parents in a Jewish town who grew up reading the Jewish scriptures and going to Jewish synagogue. But Jesus is the one who actually says in another passage that he longs to have Jerusalem under his wings like a mother hen wants to gather her chicks. So Jesus almost has like a a maternal, parental love for the Jewish people. And I think Jesus would be surprised to find out that 2,000 years later people were saying that he was anti-Semitic, okay? being a Jew himself. If you go through the New Testament, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, a Jewish Christian himself, he says that he would be willing to go to hell and be separated from God forever if it meant that all of his Jewish brothers and sisters could be saved. 
Okay, so when we look at this, I, I want to say, say that the reason why you see Jesus interacting with the Jewish people as much as he does is because he says he's their Messiah, right? And they don't believe him. They keep saying that uh, he's not really the Messiah, that they try to you know, trip him up with different scriptures. And part of the reason why I think Jesus is so strict, so hard on the Jews is like we are with our kids. You know, we expect more of them. They should know better. If anybody should know that Jesus is the Messiah, it's the ones who know the Old Testament scripture because all of the Old Testament points to him. So I just want to say that when he says that they're Jews, he's not talking about their race or their ethnicity, their ethnicity or their nationality, but rather their worship, the fact that they are opposed to God. He actually says, if you were a Jew, he says in our passage, then you would know that I'm the Messiah, you know, but, not, but you don't. You're a synagogue of Satan, okay? So in footnote or rant, if that was a rant. So Smyrna is a city, right, that houses these two uh, important things, the Roman temple and a Jewish synagogue. And so these Christians in Smyrna are sandwiched between these two political and religious forces that want to end them. The Romans don't like that they worship Caesar, or they worship Jesus instead of Caesar. And the Jews don't like them because they worship Jesus like they would worship God. So this letter, the whole book of Revelation, and particularly this letter to Smyrna, is a letter of comfort to a church that's ravaged by persecution and affliction. Again, Revelation is to a church that's ravaged by affliction and persecution, not to scare them, but to give them comfort and hope. So persecution wasn't theoretical for these Christians. Okay, these Christians, we just saw in the passage, uh, had the danger of being thrown into prison, right? If you look through all of Revelation, there are people being beheaded for their faith, there are people being tortured for their faith, imprisoned for their faith. If we look around the world today, we still see that all the time, people being beheaded across the, you know, across the sea from us. Uh, and so the book of Revelation should comfort us. And these people are saying, look, we have family members who are being thrown into prison. And Jesus is saying, yeah, and maybe you're going to be thrown into prison soon. But I want you to be comforted, right? So he tells them in verse 8, Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Okay, so Jesus is telling them first, look, I'm God. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who was there before you, and I'll be there after you. Right? Your affliction is momentary, but I am eternal. I'm the first and the last. And more than that, your faith is secure in the fact that I died and was resurrected. Okay, so even if you die, even if you are killed by the Roman government, I defeated death for you. You don't have to worry about that. So Jesus gives them comfort by saying he's God, so he's in control, and he was raised from the dead. So not even death could stop them. Not even death could hurt them. Okay, and then he comforts them further. Verse 9 and 10. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is going to put some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days, but be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. So Jesus says, are you suffering affliction? Are you in affliction right now? I know affliction. Jesus knows affliction. Are you worried about losing your home? Matthew 8. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. Are you worried about being betrayed or arrested? Mark 14. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came immediately, he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. He took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you, teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then they all deserted him and ran away. So are you worried about being betrayed or arrested? Jesus was falsely accused of something he didn't do. 
He was arrested and betrayed by his own friends. Are you worried about death? Matthew 27, Jesus hanging on the cross. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. So Jesus was not only crucified, he not only died, but he was killed in public, naked on a cross, made fun of, mocked, you know, had people spitting at him. He slid a slow, painful death in front of a bunch of people. And he says, are you worried about death? Look, I've been through death. I've already conquered death for you. So let's read again what he says to the church in Smyrna. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. So Jesus is saying, I don't just know your affliction intellectually. I didn't just read a news report about something that happened to you. I know it experientially. I went through everything that you've been through and worse. He was separated from the Father on the cross. What's worse than that? All the things that he went through. He's saying, I know that you've been through all these different things, but look, I've been through everything you've been through and worse. So we talked about the Roman temple and the Jewish synagogue here in Smyrna. It says that they're slandering them. They're telling lies about them. And I think you can probably look at this and think about the same thing that Jesus went through as well. Likely what's going on here is that these Jews are complaining to the Roman government about something. They're slandering them. They're lying about them. Maybe they're saying, you know, they're, they're saying that Jesus is king, not Caesar. Uh, and they're having them thrown into prison. This is the same thing that Jesus went through. Jesus knew this as well. It was the Jewish leaders who convinced the Romans to arrest him and crucify him in the first place, right? Let's look here at John 19. The Jews shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? These are the Jews speaking. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest said. So the Jews turned over Jesus to the Romans. And this is probably the same thing that's happening in Smyrna. So Jesus is saying again, look, I know what you've been through. The worst thing that you've been through, I've been through it. The Romans and the Jews both persecuted Christ because of their religious and political power that they wanted to hold on to. And he's telling them, look, you do not give in to that. Do not give in to their political power. Do not give in to what they want you to worship. Don't change what you're doing. I've already been through it. You're going to be thrown into prison, but it's okay. I'm the first and the last. I'm God. I'm the one who died and raised again. I've defeated death. You have nothing to worry about. So Jesus' point here is that he's already walked everywhere they've walked, suffered everything they've suffered, and conquered everything that they're unable to conquer. Poverty, betrayal, imprisonment, death, Jesus experienced it all. Now, I'm sure many of you have seen the Beverly Hillbillies TV show, right? The old 1960s sitcom about uh, these hillbillies that, you know, they're dirt poor up in the mountains, and then uh, they strike it rich one day, right? And by the way, in, in my household, my mom's whole side of the family's from West Virginia, so Beverly Hillbillies were like a cult classic in our home, okay? Like the backwoods hillbillies, you know, hick hillbillies in, in, the, in the mountains. That's my family, all right? I have an aunt who got dentures by 30 years old. I have a cousin who I have never understood a word he's ever said to me. Uh, so I totally can relate to this, to this TV show. Uh, but the premise of the show, if you don't know, Jed Clampett, he's the family patriarch. He's out hunting for dinner one day, fires his rifle at an animal, hits the ground, and gold comes bubbling up out of the ground. So overnight, they go from dirt poor to dirt rich. Literally, their wealth is coming up out of the dirt. 
And then the rest of the series you see, basically, the, the funny part of it is that you've got these backwood hillbillies in the luxurious Beverly Hills, totally out of place, doing all kinds of ridiculous things. Now, there are prosperity gospel preachers that you see on TV, that you see their books all over the New York Times bestseller list, that would say, hey, you guys, y'all are Jed Clampett. If you just work hard enough, you just keep out there and plugging away, one day God is going to make you rich. He's going to give you everything that you could have ever dreamed of. One day you're going to have all the power, all the money, all the comfort you've ever wanted. But that's not Jesus' point here at all. In fact, Jesus would have been the worst prosperity preacher ever, right? He left the riches of heaven to be a homeless man with no friends, no home, and a ministry that saw his congregation dwindle from thousands to hundreds to 12 to zero. His funeral was attended by two friends and his mom. Okay, he would have been a terrible prosperity preacher. But Jesus preaches a different kind of prosperity gospel, a different kind of health and wealth, one that doesn't focus on physical riches, how much money you make, how much power you have, the one that focuses on spiritual riches, being with him, eternity with his father. Remember what he says to the church in Smyrna in verse 10. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is not the promise of a full bank account. It's the promise of heavenly riches, even in the midst of physical and earthly poverty. It's a promise of life, even in the face of death. Because here's the deal, guys. We are all spiritual hillbillies, right? We are all dirt poor misfits who become dirt rich because our riches come up from the ground to the dirt in death and resurrection. And we fumble around in God's kingdom like hillbillies in Beverly Hills. Our lives say we don't belong. People think we're crazy, but we do belong. We belong because of our riches in Christ. And though most of us will never, ever face the threat of imprisonment or death because of our faith, we all struggle and have trials and afflictions every single day. Sometimes they don't seem very big, but we are sinners in a sinful world. And every affliction you go through, every trial you go through is a big deal because it's not the way things are supposed to be. But Jesus comforts us by reminding us that even though you have affliction, he's still already been there for you. He's already ready to bear the weight of that for you. Sometimes our sin is from our own pride and selfishness. Sometimes our sin is external circumstances. We lose a job. Uh, There's unjust laws that work against us. Uh, We have friends who betray us, a thousand of other things. But Christ is willing to bear that weight for you. So I want you to hear this morning, if you hear nothing else, that there is no suffering or affliction that you can go through that Christ has not already walked through for you. And he promises to be the one to bear that weight for you. He's not asking you to to white-knuckle it. He's not asking you to try to figure it out. He's saying, trust in me. I've already been there. I know your affliction. Professor Timothy Larson says it this way. The person who looks to Jesus and says, help my unbelief, is on a far surer track than the one who is doing an internal audit of their personal supply of ready faith. In other words, you cannot muster up enough faith to get through the suffering in your life. You are in a much better position on your knees, stooped over in prayer, than you are standing up with your chest out thinking you can do it on your own. There are two postures you can have in suffering. Being down on your knees in humility is the way to be lifted up by Christ. And then Jesus sends this message to Smyrna, and really to all the churches in Revelation, with a simple statement. Let anyone who has ears to hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. So Jesus tells them, being faithful, even to death, will result in a crown of life. And then he says, listen to the Spirit, and you will conquer not only death, but the second death. And what is the second death? Revelation 20 tells us. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, some of you see that and you go, that's why I don't like Revelation, right? We're talking about people burning forever. That's not a good thing. But listen, that's not the end of Revelation. Revelation doesn't end at at Revelation 20. He says, if you don't listen to the Spirit, if you don't believe in Christ, 
You will, have the, you will meet the second death. But if you listen to the Spirit, your eternity will look like this. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So life is full of troubles, suffering, affliction, some we can't control, some we can. But if we listen to the Spirit, God promises that it will be wiped away forever. Everything that we go through, because of our faith in Christ, we can listen to the Spirit. So this is a sermon on the Holy Spirit. You've noticed that I have not mentioned the Holy Spirit uh, yet until just now. Uh, But it's for good reason. This passage actually shows us how to handle this. This passage says that the first is to ground your hope in Christ, in the gospel. You cannot listen to the Spirit if you don't know Christ. So he says, listen to me. I know your affliction. I'm here for you. I've defeated death for you. I am God. So we start there with Jesus' death and resurrection. And then he tells us that we can live out this truth uh, by listening to the Spirit. So let's look again here. Uh, verse 11, remember what he says at the end. Let anyone who has ears to hear to what, this, uh, to what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will be never be harmed by the second death. Okay, so I want to spend just a few minutes here. Now we're entering my six-point sermon uh, area. So we're going to spend a few minutes talking about why we listen to the Holy Spirit and then a few um, how we listen to the Holy Spirit. So I want to get really practical with you guys. Let's walk through what, what is Jesus telling us to do here. Number one, why do we listen to the Holy Spirit? Because he's God. As Christians, we believe that God is a trinity, that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, and we believe that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, God living inside of us. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. So you see the trinity here, right? God sends the Holy Spirit. These people believe in Christ. And he says that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Now, if you remember, who lives in the temple? God in the Old Testament. But now we don't have to go to the temple to meet God. God lives inside of us. We're now the temple. We're now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is a promise that God made 500 years before Jesus was born. Look at Ezekiel 36. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your fathers and you will be my people and I will be your God. So God promised long ago that the Holy Spirit would live inside of us, turning our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And he promised to give his people a land that he promised to them. Now, if you remember in the Old Testament... All of the you know, early parts of the Old Testament, they're trying to get to the promised land, right? To this place that God has promised them. But they don't ever actually get there because there's always sin in the world. There's always things that are broken. There's always things that are not the way that they should be. God is not promising them a land like we have Israel across the sea right now where there's war and there's strife and there's political division all over the place. That's not the promised land. 
The promised land is the new Jerusalem that we just talked about. No more sin, no more wars, no more grief. Why would God say, I'm going to promise you a land that still stinks, that still sin is all over it? Why would he promise that? He doesn't. He promises a new Jerusalem, not one that's here on earth, but one that is coming down to earth in the future. So we listen to the Spirit because he's God living inside of us, leading us toward a new eternal city where there are no wars, no death, no pain, no tears, no division. Number two, why do we listen to the Holy Spirit? Because he reminds us of the gospel. And why wouldn't he? God wants us to know and remember the gospel, right? That's what his job, that's the whole reason why he saves us is to show us the gospel, to show us who he is. Here's what Jesus told his disciples uh, about the Holy Spirit. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. Again, we see the work of God, the Trinity here. The Father sends the Spirit to remind us of Jesus, the gospel. So we listen to the Spirit because he knows exactly what Jesus says, and he's able to tell us exactly what Jesus said. He promised that he would remind us of it. So when you feel convicted about your sin, when you remember that God loves you in the midst of frustration and suffering, that's the Spirit reminding you of the gospel. That's the Spirit speaking to you. So Jesus tells the churches, and he tells us today, that to live a faithful life of trust and obedience means listening to the Spirit. So when he prompts you about your sin, when, he, when you know God loves me even in this moment, that's the Spirit speaking to you. Listen to him. Trust him. Number three, why do we listen to the Holy Spirit? Because he has sealed our salvation. So not only is God living inside of us, not only is God reminding us of the gospel uh, through the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is also the sealer of our salvation. Put another way, the Holy Spirit keeps you saved. He keeps you connected to God and Christ. Paul tells us this. In him you were sealed with the Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So if God lives inside of you, if God promises to remind you of the gospel, then you know that you're going to be saved. You're going to be in good shape. The Holy Spirit is the promise that no matter how often you doubt, no matter how often you sin, no matter how hard things can be, God is never going to leave you. He has promised you that. You are not saved by your background, by your race, by your denomination, by your political party, by your family, for your job, or how good of a person you think you are. You are saved by the love of God shown through Christ and sealed by the Spirit. And there is nothing you can do to change that. And that's good news because all of us try to change that all the time, right? We all try to sabotage ourselves all the time. And that's why the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. To say, no, 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 you cannot sabotage yourself. I'm here. I have you. Okay, three reasons uh, three ways that we listen to the Spirit. Number one, how do we listen to the Holy Spirit? We pray. So many of us have been taught in church that prayer is a magic formula. That's probably why a lot of us struggle with prayer, right? You've got to pray a certain thing. You've got to pray a certain amount of time. You've got to have the right attitude. If you pray less than an hour, you probably didn't do good enough. Uh, and you better do it with your eyes closed, right? But that's not what Paul tells us here. Look at Romans. Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Paul says that actually, when you're out of words, when you don't know what to say, you should pray anyway. Because the best prayers, your best prayers ever on your best day, are still imperfect, sloppy, riddled with doubt, and covered in sin. But Paul tells us that prayer is not a perfect formula. It's the Spirit speaking on behalf of us. 
saying the things to God that we wish we knew how to say, saying things that we don't even know we're saying. So it's okay to struggle in prayer because that's part of living in a sinful world. It's okay to struggle with doubt. It's okay to feel sometimes like God isn't listening. Have you read the Psalms? How many times does David say, God, are you even listening to me? But the promise is always that God really is listening. So it's okay to feel sometimes like he's not, but don't let yourself stay there. Always remember that he is. He has promised that he's going to listen to you. So prayer is talking to and hearing from God. It's knowing that you're imperfect, knowing that you don't have a perfect prayer, and doing it anyway. Letting the Spirit work through your weakness. So you just pray. Say two words. God, I love you. Make me more like Jesus. Help me to believe in you. I pray every day, help my unbelief. If I can't think of anything else to say, I say that. Because you are going to come to God with awkwardness in your prayer. Newsflash, guys. Like, God knows we're all screwed up, okay? That's why he spent, sent Jesus in the Spirit. We wouldn't need Jesus in the Spirit if we had it all together. God's not waiting for us to get cleaned up to come talk to him. He says the Spirit speaks on behalf of you because he's perfect. He knows what's to say, even if you don't. So in prayer, God is listening and God is speaking. That's why the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Number two, how do we listen to the Holy Spirit? We read our Bibles. So if you've been around this church any length of time, we talk about reading our Bibles and praying all the time. Uh, Oftentimes when people are in sin or struggle or temptation, oftentimes we find that they've not been reading their Bibles and they've not been praying. Um, Because ultimately they're not listening to the Spirit speak. Peter says this, Above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible was written by real people in real time. Y'all might be surprised to know that the Bible didn't just drop out of the sky one day. Uh, But these writers were carried along by the Spirit so that what they wrote was true and it was what God wanted to say to us. So the Old and New Testament were given to us by God as a direct line to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. And so the Holy Spirit uses Scripture to train us and equip us to follow Christ. We have 2 Timothy here. And you know that from infancy, uh, infancy you have known the sacred Scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is what the Bible is meant for you. Now, look, most of us struggle to read our Bibles, okay? Like, there might be five people in this room who just love to get up and read their Bible every morning and are really looking forward to opening its pages all day, every day. And if that's you, God bless you. Most of us don't live our life that way. Most of us struggle to read the Bible. Most of us open it, and we feel like we didn't learn anything. We walk away feeling like, well, that was a waste of time. I didn't feel, I don't feel jacked up to go to work today now, right? I don't feel excited. I don't feel any better about my suffering, right? We all struggle with that. So let me just give you permission to struggle with that, okay? You have permission from the pastors of this church to struggle with reading the Bible. Jeremy, can you confirm that? Jeremy confirms that. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to walk away not knowing what you read, not understanding what you read. It's okay to walk away not feeling much better than you did before because it's not based on, reading scripture is not based on how you feel about it. It's about what the Spirit is doing through scripture, you might be reading something and walk away and go, well, that was, I don't know what that was. And then two years later, it comes to your mind and you don't remember when you read it, but that's whenever God wanted to use it. So just open it and start somewhere. Read a psalm a day. Open the Gospel of Mark and just read a paragraph at a time. Read the story of Jesus. Just start somewhere. And if you don't feel anything, that's okay, because sometimes you won't. But that doesn't mean the Spirit's not working. That doesn't mean the Spirit's not speaking in your life. 
God is still putting his truth into your heart and mind, even when you don't realize it. The Spirit speaks on behalf of you, as we just saw. He says the words that you don't even know how to say. I think Scripture works the same way. God is speaking to you in ways that you don't even understand most of the time. But like lifting weights or drinking black coffee or learning a language or starting a new show on Netflix, you might open your Bible and not know what's going on right away. You might need to stick with it for a little bit to learn what's going on, right? You might drink black coffee and pretend like you like it, but actually it takes you a long time to learn how to appreciate it. You may not want to work out, but after you've worked out for several weeks, you're not as sore as you were before. You start feeling better about it. You look in the mirror, you feel a little bit better. It's the same way with Scripture in in, in a much bigger way. How much more should we fight tooth and nail to speak the language of the Spirit when we are willing to fight through all these other things in our life? You are not going to understand the Bible the first time you've ever opened it. It's just not going to happen. That's not the point. Okay, you don't open a a seven-book series in the first chapter and go, well, I know how this is going to end. You don't know how. You read, you stick with it, you read through it, and you begin to understand what's going on. When you look at people who have read the Bible for years and you say, man, I wish I knew the Bible like that, they didn't learn the Bible by not reading it. They, they, they didn't figure it out the first time that they read it, right? They spent time with it over years and years, plotting, probably not liking it half the time. But God was still speaking through them, giving them words to speak to you later. That's what God does through Scripture. So keep fighting for Scripture even if you don't feel like it. Number three, lastly, how do we listen to the Holy Spirit? We live in community. And you've heard it a million times, but hear it again. Christianity is not an individualistic religion. You are not a solo person in your walk with God. God's church is a people, a group of people from different races and backgrounds and interests and experiences. If you ever talked about this a few weeks ago, the Bible calls Christians a body and says that we need each other. Like your body needs an arm and a leg and a kidney and lungs, we all need each other. And that's how we're going to accomplish God's mission in this world, is with each other. And this is why at this church we believe so strongly in community groups. Because we need each other. We know we need each other. So if you're not in a community group, get in a community group. If you're in a community group and you don't talk and you don't share your struggles and sin, please start doing that. We need each other. We need to hear your sin. We need to be able to speak to your sin. We need to hear you tell us how we can follow Christ better in our sin. Paul says this, just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized in one spirit, into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. The spirit unifies us because the spirit binds us together, regardless of our background. He says Jews or Greeks, we can say every race, every nationality of the entire world, we all need each other. We're all bound together by our faith in Christ through the Spirit. And we know that we need each other because we all know if we've tried to do it by ourselves, we know it's exhausting. We know we can't do it. All of us have tried it a million times. But Proverbs 26 tells us this. Do you see a person who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. It is foolish, the Bible says, to think that you can live this life alone, to think that you can do it by yourself. But the Spirit speaks through the church. A church that prays together, a church that confesses sin to one another, That's the church that God can use. That's a church that's listening to the Spirit. Y'all think about how VBS just came about with us, right? We had planned VBS. We were going to do all this stuff with VBS. And then we decided, look, we want to pray to be a Spirit-filled church who seeks diversity, right? We want to learn from other people who are not like us. We don't want our church to have all the same people in it. And so we prayed about it. We said, God, how can you make us a more diverse church? How can you help us to learn from other people? And then really, out of nowhere, the VBS opportunity fell into our laps, right? 
It wasn't a mystical experience. It wasn't fire raining down from heaven. It was just God showing us in a tangible way. Okay, you prayed for this. Here's the Spirit speaking to you. Here's an opportunity. And praise God we stepped into it, even though it was uncomfortable, even though it challenged our schedules. Uh, I know some of you canceled your vacations and changed other plans to be there. This is the Spirit speaking to us, saying, look, I know that was comfortable for you to put it on yourself, but how about you step outside and go be the church that you say you want to be, which is a church that learns from each other, a, a, a church that listens to the Spirit. It could not have happened without our church praying together. It could not have happened with every one of us together unified, saying, this is what I want our church to be. So by listening to the Spirit, we are letting God make us richer than we could ever imagine because we're letting him make us more like Jesus. The way to conquer, Jesus says, is not by hard work. It's not by your heritage, your race, your status, who you voted for, who you didn't vote for, how many times you sinned this week, how many times you gave to charity. It's none of that. It's listening to the Spirit by faith in Christ. And if we're going to make it through affliction in this life, if we're going to make it through struggle in this life, we have to listen to the Spirit. We have to rely on Christ to bear our burdens for us and listen to what the Spirit says. And the only way we can do that is intentionally, together, in prayer, in reading Scripture, knowing that God lives in us, knowing that God is going to remind us of the Bible. He's going to remind us of the gospel. He's going to push us into one another so that we can grow. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Let's pray. Father, again, we acknowledge that we love you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for uh, the fact that you wanted to know us, the fact that you wanted to show your love to us even though we rebelled, even though we sinned against you, and we continue to every day. Father, would you help this church, help me, help all of us know, God, that you love us and that our affliction and our suffering and our trials are momentary, but you are eternal, God. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who reminds us of the gospel, who has sealed our salvation so that we know that we can never be plucked out of your hand, God. No matter how hard we fight, no matter how time we try to peel back your fingers to get out, you won't let us go. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for not letting us sabotage ourselves. Thank you that your love is stronger than our hate. Father, would you help this church be a church that listens to you, that seeks diversity, that seeks to be rooted in the gospel, rooted in the Bible. Father, help us to be a church that multiplies, that makes disciples, that shows more people who you are. God, would you let us be a spirit-filled church that speaks the language of the spirit, not the language of the world. Father, help us to do that this week and through the rest of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.